0: We are starting, though, with one of the stories you've been hearing in the news, the federal liberals withdrawing an amendment to their guns bill. It was introduced and quite controversial, to say the least, bringing in a new definition of so-called assault-style weapons.
1: Amendment G4 and G46 had really derailed any kind of progress that we could have made on C-21, and I've never uh, seen such a groundswell of opposition um, come really from everywhere all at once.
0: That was New Democrat MP Alistair McGregor. MPs on the committee looking at this unanimously agreed to the Liberal motion to withdraw the amendment. Well, we're going to talk more about this with Daniel Fritter. He is the owner of Caliber, which is Canada's largest gun magazine. Daniel, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: What's your reaction to hearing about this uh, this amendment being withdrawn?
1: I was pretty floored. This is the first time the Liberals have stepped back from gun regulation. Um, and I was a bit surprised because, well, we heard Alistair McGregor say certainly that, you know, opposition is unified against this in a way that we've not seen. Um, the actual bill itself is something we've seen numerous times. It's basically the extension of the May 2020 OIC. So it's it's a bit surprising to me that they're, they're walking it back when they've kind of already done this and never walked that back. So, you know, I guess it's just a different political scenario this time.
0: What does it also say to about the the opposition to this did do you think that they they realized i guess maybe or that they kind of overplayed their hand and when they put this amendment out there and we're getting pushback uh, from hunters from people saying well hold on a second these are the very guns that you said you weren't going to be putting on this bill did they did they not realize i suppose just how much just how fierce that opposition was going to be
1: I actually don't think they realized that the opposition would be as fierce as it was because I don't think they realized what this bill even said. Um, I've followed it super extensively, and I know the government has said repeatedly that with some of these hunting rifles, like, for example, the Ruger Number no. 1, which is a single-shot hunting rifle, that it would only be the big calibers that would be banned, only the ones that could produce over 10,000 joules of muzzle energy, which is the the criteria that they were trying to ban. But having read the law, it doesn't say that. It just says the Ruger Number One is prohibited. It doesn't say in this specific caliber anything. Just says this gun is illegal. Um, so that was debated numerous times at the committee, and and to be honest, the numerous points bureaucrats from government were saying different things. So I don't think that a firm grasp on what it was doing, and I think that um, this sort of blew up in their face, but I also wonder a little bit about the timing, because uh, previous to this, the last thing that the committee was considering doing was commissioning a large study, having uh, these members from SECU go up north to the Yukon, Northwest Territories, see how people live with these guns. Um, and I think the Liberals were a little bit concerned that if that went forward, it could kind of shine a light on a, exactly what this bill was doing, and they might have panicked a bit and thought, you know, If people realize this is a big hunting gun ban, it isn't going to make anyone safer. That that wouldn't really uh, obtain their objectives. Uh,
0: People who have been opposed to this, and more than just the amendment that was withdrawn, but oppose the bill for exactly the reason you just said uh, with the the argument that this isn't going to make anyone safer, this isn't targeting, if you're talking about targeting criminals and targeting crime, this isn't going to do it. Um, Do you think that it needs to go further, or where does this leave the gun bill?
1: I think it needs to go further, but that's, I mean, I look at it from a logical perspective of, you know, the, the liberals that, are, that, that withdrew this bill initially told us that Bill C-21 needed to be amended because there was discussions around whether or not this amendment was even valid because it, it expanded the scope of Bill C-21 beyond what it originally was hugely. Um, and in that discussion, the liberal argument was it's so crucial to get this amendment put in so quickly because we need to save lives with it right now. And now, two months later, we're being told they're just going to take this away and rescind it. So you have to either reach the logical conclusion that the Liberals are going to withdraw these amendments and they're okay with a bunch of Canadians being shot and killed because they actually thought this was going to protect people. Or you think they aren't thinking a whole bunch of Canadians are going to get killed. They just think this is probably politics. Now, I I think I probably speak for most Canadians when I don't think... I don't think very highly of the Liberal Party, but I also don't think they're prepared to withdraw a bill thinking it will create mass murder, um, which I think is an indication that this all has been politics from day one. And, and when you look at it from that perspective, then why hasn't C-21 gone away? Because it's, it's just the extension of the same logic that in a country where you can't have a gun unless you have a card in your wallet that comes with a mandatory daily background check, you can't have a gun. Um, period. Doesn't matter if a handgun, a rifle, a shotgun. So so why are they treating different guns differently? It doesn't make sense. Um and I think to get credibility on this file, they need to make some the Liberal Party in the future will need to make significant strides to regain any kind of credibility on guns
0: right because it does seem that it's it's almost their fallback topic if if they want to change the channel or get to the conversation and people do get riled up about this of course they do because th- there's always that equa- equating it to crime when we are talking about t- two very very different things but it does seem to be the fallback topic and and what they've gone to but in this case i don't think it played out it, was, it obviously did not play out the way that they were hoping for um, we're hearing those from some conservative MPs saying that they're concerned that to, even though this withdrawal is, is, has been made, the amendment has been withdrawn, they're concerned that it still might be temporary. Do you have that concern?
1: Yes. I don't think that the Liberals have changed their mind, um, per se. I think that they have decided that this amendment, the way it was worded and the way it's being introduced, isn't working for them politically. Um, I don't think that withdrawing it represents a change in opinion regarding firearms, Um, if this amendment had been allowed to pass, which they were obviously quite keen to allow to happen, uh, it wouldn't have left many guns out there in the civilian market for, for anyone to really have, it would have banned all semi-automatic rifles, pretty much a ton of the semi-automatic shotguns. So I don't think it represents a sea change, but I do think, you know, pretty much everyone sort of discussed there's probably going to be an election this year or next year, early next year, um, And after that election, there's probably going to be leadership races for the Liberal Party and the NDP, definitely the NDP, potentially the Liberals. And I think that um, when you consider the ramifications of the Liberals withdrawing these amendments and what that says about how they view potential political capital coming from the gun discussion in the future, um, I think that has interesting ramifications for an NDP that might be forced to kind of litigate the gun issue in a leadership race in a few months. Um, and we might see gun politics in Canada kind of reframed, which I would obviously like to see in a very healthy way.
0: What does this actually do for people? Like you said, anyone in Canada who has a gun license, who has taken the course, who has a criminal record check every day to hold that license. What does this amendment being withdrawn actually do uh, to people in, in the scenarios, I suppose, that, that maybe own some of those rifles that they or, or shotguns that they hunt with? Uh, it gives
1: everyone a lot more confidence. I can actually speak especially to the industry side because we just came back from our massive annual trade show um, where a lot of those guys were talking about. Uh, they were, I mean, we, we had very open discussions about things like anxiety medications because these guys are panicking. They, you know, some of them have just leased new space because the gun market has been picking up. It's been doing very well lately. Um, and now suddenly you get this news that you can't sell for a lot of them what represented over 30% of their, their overall market sales. Um it gives them confidence that they can kind of keep the lights on tomorrow. And in a very real way, you know, for, I know various clients of mine that today are now kind of very happy with the fact they don't have to decide who to fire. They, they've got employees that they were looking at last week and going, I'm probably not going to be able to keep all of you. And, and today they're going, okay, we have a bit of a reprieve. We can still sell semi-automatic rifles. We can still sell semi-automatic shotguns. Um, well, we have this discussion. So it, it does kind of calm everyone down, but I don't think, like I said, unless the Liberals are prepared to make some more significant inroads with the gun community, uh, they're they're not going to find any kind of friends there for a good long while.
0: All right. Daniel Fritter, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Thank you for having me as always some um, residents in Port Moody are voicing some concerns. And in fact, the mayor and council there have added their voices to some concerns over new flight paths or some potential new flight paths. The idea being that could mean more aircraft overhead and some neighborhoods could become a lot more noisy. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Megan Lottie, the mayor of the city of Port Moody. Megan Lottie, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I know that uh, a letter has been written to NAV Canada. Can you give us a bit of background or talk a little bit about what what the concerns are about potential increased air traffic? You know,
2: I I think um, there's a lot of concerns in the community. And and I'm not sure uh, which of those concerns are uh, more well-founded than others. I think part of the big problem for for our community and, uh, for that matter, the northeast sector is the fact that there has been inadequate notification of the project and public consultation period. So, um, you know, our community, the the subject is complex and nuanced and it it really requires some careful consideration. And there are a number of areas of concern that have been brought up. And, um, you know, so we've identified those in our letter. Um, We would like more time. We would like um, better consultation to take place.
0: And so this came about from a public consultation that Nav Canada is doing about modernizing the airspace or or the airspace around YVR. But is is there anything specific in there that shows there could be more planes or more air traffic directly over Port Moody? Oh, absolutely.
2: Yes, it'll definitely be increased, Um, not only increased in terms of the incoming traffic, but the, um, the outgoing air traffic will also be
0: increased. Right, okay. And have you had any response at this point from NAV Canada?
2: No, uh, we haven't. And, you know, this is another another bit of concern for us. As I mentioned, I, I don't think that there's been adequate notification of the project. Um, most of the time when there are these types of significant um, changes being proposed, there's more than a month um, of, of opportunity. I mean, I found out quite by happenstance that this was happening as the mayor of the city. Um, We were never approached by NAV Canada um, individually. Nobody came to us and nobody spoke to us. Um, I understand that they did go to um, Coquitlam, um, but they did not come to to Port Moody. And, you know, quite frankly, um, there's a concern about the accountability of NAV Canada.
0: Right. And I know that, or at least I understand that the mayor of Porco Quitlam has also sent a letter opposing these changes to the flight paths. And I know there's an online petition as well. How is it now then as far as the current flight paths and noise over your city?
2: Well, right now we actually have quite a bit of air traffic um, in not so much from the um, what is being proposed, but we have um, military and we also have a helicopter and small aircraft that, 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 fly, over, that fly over our jurisdiction. Um, and, but, you know, it, what, we're, what we're really concerned about is the lack of consultation. And some of the uh, metrics and modeling that they're using, um, that they have used in their consultation to date, has some questionable um, outcomes. So, you know, people need more time to consider this and to really um, provide good feedback and knowledgeable, you
0: know, knowledgeable feedback. And I, one of the concerns I see that has been raised as well is that, that they haven't really demonstrated why these changes are necessary or why they are saying that these changes are necessary. And I, I imagine that goes back to kind yes. of the transparency and how this all came about.
2: Yeah, we, that was one of our concerns, like the, the, the demonstrated um, necessity for this, um, you know, we we need to look at um, we need to look at all of the data that's being presented, and we need to have time in order to do that. Like I said, I found out quite through happenstance that this was happening, and you know, so when something like this is being proposed that is quite significant, we need more opportunity to have input.
0: Uh, is there the possibility, and again, this uh, w- would be something I-, I suppose that NAV Canada would have to answer, but I'm curious if, if, you're, if you're thinking maybe uh, the possibility is that they're this is suggesting that where, say, uh, a community like Richmond, which is where the airport is and there are homes and such very close to the airport, they're obviously impacted, especially by planes landing and taking off. But is there perhaps the, the thought process that Port Moody is far enough away that it wouldn't be that impacted?
2: No, I think that um, that they absolutely know that Port Moody will be impacted because they're changing the flight t- path. They're, they're 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 redirecting the flight path.
0: Right. No. To, no. no uh, I was just have
2: much more concentrated, much more concentrated air traffic over top of uh, the northeast sector, which includes Port Coquitlam, Coquitlam, and Port Moody more
0: in Belcarra. Okay, yeah, no, no and I was just curious if, if the argument maybe was that, well, it's not exactly, it's not next to where they're f- taking off and landing, which is the loudest part of, of air travel, that maybe there's oh. the, the idea that it wouldn't be that loud. And not not saying that that's a valid argument. Yeah. I'm just trying to and, figure and out. No, yeah.
2: I actually think that that, is a, that, 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 that that is a valid response to that argument. The, the, the concern is uh, that, that that may be the case. But we, um, looking through the, their limited um, modeling and their limited data, we cannot ascertain what those impacts will be. So it's, it's hard to give comment and it's hard to provide feedback when we are not exactly sure. Like we don't know what the traffic volumes and the overflight frequency will be, um, how that will actually look. So there, I, I don't believe that there's been enough um, fulsome consultation and enough effort Put into um, to put into this process, you know they are. NAF Canada is a federally regulated industry that's been substantially privatized over the past few decades, and it operates within almost complete autonomy from local from any local uh, accountability. So, having said that, it appears that assessment of community impacts and noise pollution abatement beyond the minimal requirements is completely voluntary, and and this. You know, from from the from a community perspective, is is
0: is troublesome. Oh uh, no, for sure, and, and I think too, and I, I've seen some other residents quoted as saying they, the, exactly that that they don't know what will the noise be like, what will shadows potentially yeah. be like, how many planes are we talking about? Um, from what I understand as well, so the, is today the last day then of, of the time period for uh, for feedback for people to get their feedback and make sure it's known to Nav Canada? It is. Yes, from my understanding, today is the day.
2: So we, we've managed to get our feedback in, but you know, again, we'd like to see more fulsome consultation so that people can actually understand what these what these proposed changes are going to mean.
0: What do you do next then, as a concerned mayor, and uh, knowing that there are residents that still have so many questions? Uh, the the feedback has been given to Nav Canada. Uh, what what possible next moves do you have? You
2: no, know, potentially, I suppose we could. It is a federally regulated uh, body. Perhaps we we go to the federal government
0: and then and make the case that that there wasn't enough consultation or that more of that needs to be done.
2: Yeah, I mean, it just prov- uh, provide the um, opportunity to, uh, you know, t- to give us a little bit more time to, to consider what it is that that's being proposed. There, there just really isn't. Um, it, there's just really no no good excuse for this limited uh, amount of consultation to take place on such a significant change.
0: All right. Mayor Lanty, thank you so much, though, for joining us today and talking more about this. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. We are going to talk a little bit now about artificial intelligence and could it help people who are in what is often a costly and can be a very stressful time? Could it help people who are getting a divorce? Joining us to talk more about this is Russell Alexander, the founder of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. Thank you so much for being with us.
3: Good afternoon, Jill.
0: Good afternoon to you. Uh, Not a fun time, I think people would agree, but uh, artificial intelligence, uh, very interesting looking at how this could be involved. How do you see this kind of being integrated or helping to facilitate people who are going through divorce?
3: Yeah, it's really grown by leaps and bounds, Jill. We took a look at this uh, AI about a year ago, and there was mistakes and a lot of work required to clean up any work product. The chat PTT that just came out um, in December is amazing in terms of its effectiveness. So how is it going to help people going through divorce? Well, for one thing, you can get probably better answers from the AI than you would get from a Google result. Um, The the results we're seeing are college level or first-year law student answers to questions. So if you know what question to ask, um, you're probably going to get a good answer. So if I want to learn about child support in British Columbia, what statutes apply? You're going to get a fairly accurate answer from the artificial intelligence.
0: Hmm, Interesting. And how does that actually work then? Is it it like chat bots or that type of thing when you're talking about people asking questions and that's where they're getting the answers from?
3: Well, there's a number of programs out there. Probably the most uh, popular one is OpenAI. And you have a box, and you put your question in, and within seconds, it starts typing out the answer to your question. So we were playing around with it this afternoon. We got uh, some facts from our client who completed our intake scenario, and we asked the AI to create a court application based on this information, and we cut and pasted in, and it produced the document that we needed.
0: Hmm, Interesting. So uh, you're uh, a lawyer. I'm I'm guessing the answer to this question is no, because I think the one of the questions would be then, well, can it replace lawyers that have been doing this up until now?
3: Well, of course, lawyers can say no, right? (laughs) They don't want to be out of a job. Um, My answer to that question is not completely. Uh, Not yet, but maybe one day. Um, Still, you want some lawyers to discern that the AI is producing the correct result, the correct legislation, the correct form. But what it's going to do, Jill, is make lawyers a lot more efficient. So where we'd spend three hours preparing a document, AI can produce it in seconds, and then maybe we'll spend 20 minutes cleaning it up and making sure it's correct. So it's going to make lawyers more efficient, and it's going to improve access to the justice system.
0: And so so would that also then, because we know divorce can be expensive as well, would it potentially cut down then on fees or cut down on the expenses?
3: Well, it should. If we're spending less time working on your files, um, more importantly, it's going to free up the lawyer's time to work on additional cases. So a lot of the complaints we have about the family court system in Canada is it's slow and it's expensive. And lots of people phone lawyers and it's, they find it difficult to get an appointment or they're not very responsive. That could be because they're in court and uh, they just don't have the time or they're preparing documents. So the AI has the potential to really improve access to justice because it's going to free up lawyers' time to help more clients.
0: And what if we're talking about a divorce that's messy, that's a complicated divorce uh, and uh, there, there would be a ton of questions?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Jill. Like I said at the beginning, you got to ask the right question. And sometimes you're going to need a lawyer to understand what those right questions are. If you have a complicated case, I think the AI can help you produce an answer to that case, provided that you give an AI the right data and the right information that it needs to generate the answer. Obviously, a lot of cases involve complex human emotions and uh feelings and obvious you know that still need you're still going to need a lawyer to help client, guide the client through the divorce process
0: all right that makes a lot of sense uh, when we're talking about ai or chat bots as well is there kind of a track record as far as have they been used in other legal situations maybe again not as complicated or as potentially messy as a divorce but things like traffic tickets or parking tickets uh, have they been used in helping people with that
3: Yeah, we're seeing more and more of that, especially in the United States. Uh, They seem to uh, be a little bit more innovative and a little bit more outgoing uh, than the Canadian um, Legal Administration of Justice. But, yeah, it's becoming more popular as the programs get better. And the, the most recent release is really quite amazing in terms of what it can produce.
0: And how is it then, do you think, maybe convincing clients or convincing people that it is a way to maybe get a better answer to a question or if you've got the right questions, to get somebody uh, comfortable maybe dealing with AI, dealing with a chatbot rather than a human?
3: Right. Well, everybody's different. We have people who are early adopters of technology. We all have friends or family who go out and buy the latest iPhone even though their current iPhone is perfectly fine. And then we have people who are always slow to adopt to technology. I know my wife's uh, mother got an ATM bank card, and she's never used the ATM machine. She goes to the, cal- the, to the counter to talk to somebody. Hmm. So you're going to have that spectrum, Jill. And, and the people who are early adopters, I think they're going to find that uh, it will save them time and expense.
0: And uh, something I hadn't thought of, though, and, and uh, because uh, I think unless you've been in that scenario, you just kind of make the assumption that if somebody needs a lawyer, then they will be able to find one or access one, or at least uh, be able to go down that road. For people then that maybe couldn't access a lawyer, or maybe have have very specific uh, dollars as far as the amount that they have to spend on that, uh, would it help in that case? In that maybe again for somebody who can't access a lawyer, can't find one that, again, not to replace it, but at least to to kind of help them along that path?
3: Well, it's it's, it's another search tool, right? It's Google supercharged. So you're going to get a much more robust and fulsome answers to your legal questions using AI. Uh, You want to make sure you're going to be asking the right questions, but I think the artificial intelligence can even tailor uh, the answers to your particular family. You may have a five and a 10-year-old. One may have special needs. You want to talk about a parenting order. AI can help you with that and customize your search result according to your family's needs.
0: Where do you see the technology going from here as far as are, are more tech companies or startups looking at this and making it better or do, you, do where do you see it kind of growing from here?
3: Well, there's, Two parts to that question. Uh, The first is the tech part. You know, my understanding is Google's CEO declared a red alert with respect to AI because it's going to fundamentally change the nature of search. Think Microsoft's invested $10 billion in it. They're going to make it part of their Bing search program. So those changes are happening fast and quick, and we have startup companies uh, developing AI to help lawyers with the software. So that's happening right now. But with respect to the administration of justice, Jill, just think it was only three or four years ago that our our entire justice system was paper-based and it had been like that for 200 years. The pandemic caused the system to pivot. So now we've got digital filing of court documents. We have Zoom hearings. You can do a court hearing from the comfort of your own home. Completely changed within two or three years. I think, AI is going to have the same impact on the justice system. And I think it's going to happen a lot quicker than we're expecting.
0: Well, it's very interesting to see how much has changed already and how this is being integrated into the process. Russell, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for joining us.
3: Jill, have a great afternoon. Thank you.
0: Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, just before the break, I played for you this short exchange. Don't come at me again. (coughs) Don't film me. Come on. I don't want you to have a photo. Just leave. Get away from me. Come on at me. Don't
2: take a photo.
0: Now, one of the voices in that exchange, that is from some cell phone video, is Lisa Adams, who is a dog walker. And she's joining us now to talk about what happened and what she experienced on a dog walking trail while she was out doing that. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us and for talking more about this today. Oh, thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, when did this happen? Um, uh, last Monday, February 23rd, sorry, January 23rd. January 23rd. And where were you?
4: Uh, I was at Northlands Park in North Van.
0: Okay. And on that, uh, in that exchange, uh, we can hear your voice so we can hear somebody else's voice. So take us back to the beginning. You were out, you were walking dogs and uh, what unfolded?
4: Um, Well, uh, to be honest with you, the beginning of it, I'm really not entirely sure. Um, (laughs) We were walking along. My dogs I had five with me. Our limit is six. Um, And we were just you know, doing our normal route, we came around a corner, the dog saw two poodles um, and they all, the poodles and my dogs, they were all quite friendly with each other and kind of did that hopping playfulness that dogs do. Um, And then the poodle jumped into the bushes and just, and looked through like that come chase me. Um, But my dogs all stopped because they were waiting for me and I could see them all. And so I came around the corner and, um, and then this woman comes out and she's wearing a pink coat and a man in a brown jacket, and the woman said something to me, and I genuinely did not hear her. And I said, Pardon? Um, I didn't even say what. <laughs> Pardon? And immediately she said, uh, Don't ignore me, you effing bee. You heard me. You need to leash your dogs. Um, and I, I said, uh, Sorry. I actually said, Pardon, because I didn't hear you. Um, no, I don't need to leash the dogs. Red and off leash park. Your dogs are off leash, and the dogs are fine. You guys go your way, I'll go mine, essentially was our exchange in that. So she kept swearing at me, and I was very confused, and, you know, when people are in an awkward situation, they smile, and so I kind of smiled and said, you know, I'm really sorry, I don't know what's going on here, but which way are you guys going? And she said, well, we want to go this way. I said, fine, I'll go the other way. She said, well, my dog's over there, and you have my dog cornered. And again, there was nothing funny about the situation, but as she said that, her dog came out and walked right past my group over to her. And so I said, great, we can all kind of go our separate ways. And she pulled out her phone and said, you know, you're an effing problem. You're an effing b. have seen you before, um, you know, and I, I looked at her and said, I've never seen you before. I'm just going to go, I'm going to report you. And I said, you know what, lady, I, I don't come to work to get screamed at by you or to be called names by you. And, you know, my colleagues and I need to be safe out here. So I pulled out my phone. I said, you know, people need to know you're out here abusing people. Um, and her husband turned and saw my phone, and immediately he actually swung at me. And I took a step back, and I was in shock. Um, and I took a step back out of the way, and he didn't hit me, but I had my phone in front of me, and I looked down, and I immediately, you know, as, uh, hit video on my phone. And as I'm saying that, I'm going, did you just swing at me? And he responded, no, I didn't swing at you, and then immediately actually swings at me again. And then comes running at me and tries to slap my phone. And that's where the video ends. Um, And I squeezed onto that phone. I actually had bruising on my hands from how hard I was squeezing onto this phone. And in that moment, he actually grabbed me and pushed me down onto my back into a bush. And he came down on top of me. And his knees and feet were holding my legs down. And he just was punching me repeatedly. Oh, my Um, goodness. That's awful. Yeah, it was really bad and I was in absolute shock and immediately, you know, he's put his hands on me and I'm like, oh my God, what is going on? What is happening? What are you doing? Just an absolute shock and so the whole time he's hitting me, I've got my hands up to protect my face and head and, and I'm just going, get off, oh my God, get off me and so all I can really see is more or less his bottom half and I can see behind him is the legs of his wife who's just standing there um, and then I hear barking and I look behind him and I can see my dog and his brother, which they're big dogs. They're greater Swiss mountain dogs. They had started jumping up on their back legs and barking. Um, And that was how they were trying to handle the situation. And so I could see her feet walking towards us at that point when the dogs had started jumping. And she went to pull him off of me. And in that moment, I heard crunching in the bushes beside me. And I looked over, and my, one of my dogs had actually army crawled under the bush and was pulling on my jacket to try to get me out from under this man. Wow. Um, yeah, it was scary. And so he got pulled off of me, and I jumped up, and I still had my phone, and I said, oh, my God, I'm calling the cops. This is crazy. And they, kinda, they kept you know, saying things at me, and, and also she was pulling him to walk away, which I thought was great. But I pulled out my phone, and I was videotaping them as they were walking away. And this is where I actually had a second video and you see him, he pushes his wife off of him and he comes towards me. And that's where you hear me saying, do not come at me again. Do not come at me again. And he's saying, I don't want you to have video of me. And again, he went for my phone and that's where the video ends. And uh, this time he came at me with a very calculated um, attack with his, his right hand, he came at my head To punch me in the side of the head and I put my hands up to protect my head and his left hand immediately came at my stomach and he punched me with such force in my stomach and I doubled over and then he grabbed both of my hands by my forearms pulled them down spun me around and put me in a bear hug from behind and so he had both my arms pinned down and his wife tried to grab my phone and she's yelling, get the phone. And he's going, grab the phone. And I said, don't touch my phone, you F and B. And he said, don't call my wife that name. And then threw me face down into the bushes. And now this time he's on my back. And he is just pummeling me. Kidney punches, back punches, arms, everything. And so at this point, I realize I'm not getting out of this without help. <laughs> and so I just started screaming at the top of my lungs. I have never in my life made that sound. And I was just screaming for help and screaming for help and flailing. And eventually I just, I got an elbow up on him and I I hit him. I must've hit him because I felt pressure come off of my back and I immediately spun over and I got my leg up and I used all the force I could to kick him off of me. Um, And I, but the whole time I'm just screaming for help. And as I was kicking him off of me, I heard someone say, are you okay? From a distance. And I screamed, no, please come help, help, help. And that's when his wife grabbed him and pulled him back. Um, and I and he came at me again to grab my phone, and I bolted in the other direction towards the voice. And when the voice came through and towards me, it turned out to actually be one of my other clients who was out walking her dog that morning. And so when she saw me, she could tell, obviously, I was in danger, and she came running towards me. But um, they were at a distance at this point. However, he did continue to swipe at my phone. Um, in front of her, you know, and I took a few more steps back and she calms the situation and she said, everybody needs to calm down. I don't know what just happened. Lisa, don't move. You're staying here. You people need to leave. Like just get away from her, get away from, and just everybody needs to calm down. And I remember standing very tall because I didn't want to, you know, be vulnerable. So I'm standing very tall. And the second they were out of my sight, I just broke down Um, and I was on the trail crying and, actually went into a bit of shock, and after I spoke to my client, I actually grabbed the dogs and tried to continue hiking, and I realized I was going into shock, um, and two gentlemen saw me and said, like, no, you need to stop and call the police, and so that's the moment that I did.
0: Wow, well, I, I mean, just absolutely, I, I mean... Such a frightening thing to have happen. Uh, And I know RCMP have said that they are investigating, uh, looking for the suspect. They've had some people contact them uh, as far as who this might be. But how concerned are you that this happened on on this very popular trail? And uh, at this point, anyway, unless there's been an update, uh, at this point, uh, there hasn't been an arrest made.
4: Well, that's my biggest concern. That's my absolute biggest concern. I mean, my my son, and I love that they do this. I think it's an incredible program that my son's teacher has implemented. But they hike in that park weekly. You know, my first instinct when it happened after it was to actually let my colleagues know because they're out walking. And what often happens when someone sees a dog walker and they get into an altercation with them is that every dog walker they see after that, they're going to go at them. So I instinctively let everyone on our WhatsApp channel know. And then I immediately let all of the parents at my kids' school know through a Facebook page that we have. Um, because I didn't want any of them in the woods. It, it was terrifying. And I'm getting asked daily, um, you know, what, when is an arrest being made? I'm keeping my kids out of the woods. I'm not hiking in the woods. You know, my husband wants to go out looking for these guys because we don't feel safe in what's essentially our own, you know, backyard. We know we don't own the trails. But, This is where everybody plays. It's terrifying knowing that anybody could have this happen to them. And we need closure. We need answers. And we need to get someone to come out and say who this guy is and say, I know this person, and get this over and done with. Um, It's scary. It's scary to think that the, the scariest things in these mountains are the
0: humans. Hmm. Well, and uh, I know that uh, you've been talking to Global News about this as well, and and there will be a a television news story about this also. And and we did this to to kind of raise awareness. And if anybody knows anything that they could maybe uh, help out with that as well. Um, Lisa, thank you for for joining us and for talking about this today. I'm so uh, it's so awful that this happened to you, but uh, I'm so glad that you're okay and able to talk about it.
4: Oh, thank you so much. And it has been a struggle. Um, I have I've had a hard time going back to that trail. Um, I know my client who heard me screaming, she's having a hard time just from having heard my screams. I have a hard time with it. So. But I think it's really important that everybody knows that, you know, people are still out there. And more importantly, I think everybody needs to start trying to be more proactive about how we express our emotions in public and, you know, that m- someone else's bad day, isn't my problem or someone else's problem. Whereas, you know, we can't go around hitting people and screaming at people. We all need to start living with an open heart and kindness and smiling at each other again. And that's what I really would love to see happen.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good message. Absolutely. Well, Lisa, thank you again so much. I know it's probably difficult talking about this as well, but thank you for getting the word out and for joining us today. Well, thank you, Jill some new Statistics Canada information released earlier today shows investors making up about one-third of homeowners in some provinces. This is information, though, that's taken from 2020. In B.C., it's at about 23.3% when we look at investors as homeowners. And this is information as well that really studied or looked at houses used as an investment. Uh, They were mainly owned by individuals. Individuals living in the same province as the property—that's when we're talking about houses. However, the StatsCan data also showed that condos and apartments were often used as investments more than houses. So we're talking about this uh, today because a new uh, report, uh, a new op-ed that was written out, uh, written about this as well, about BC's housing affordability crisis, looks specifically at that. This idea of corporate players when it comes to rental properties—not so much just investments, but getting into the rental property market. And Dr. Andre Pavlov is joining us now to talk more about his writing on this. He's a professor of finance at the Beattie School of Business at SFU. Thank you so much for being with us today.
5: Yes, thank you for having me.
0: Uh, You've written about this and uh, talk about, uh, when we we talk about issues or or initiatives, sorry, to solve BC's housing affordability crisis. Uh, We know that the provincial government has a new rental protection fund. Uh, There's a goal to boost housing supply. A lot of that is focused on corporations. It's focused on development. Uh, What are your thoughts on that focus?
5: Well, I love the uh, boosting of housing supply objective. Obviously, we're experiencing a very severe housing shortage. We've been experiencing that for about a decade now, but it's getting worse every year. Um, and um, uh, the problem I have is that uh, the Renter Protection Fund, the, the $5 million fund uh, you mentioned, and many other measures actually go the other in the other direction. They actually make it, Harder uh, and less likely for anyone to, uh, to build and provide um, housing in general, and especially rental housing. So it seems like the, the objective of um, increasing housing supply is really uh, at odds with, um, with the measures uh, we're taking.
0: And, and why, why do you think there is such a disconnect? And, and when we're looking at it, if, if the very thing that this was meant to do is in fact having the opposite outcome?
5: Well, to take the Rental Protection Fund, for example, its stated objective is to acquire rental buildings and prevent investors from redeveloping them. So, of course, it's, it's framed as, as, um, as a tool to, to protect the current occupants of those buildings. But really, at the end of the day, it, all it does is makes it even harder and more expensive to to build new housing, especially rental housing, And it doesn't really protect even the occupants of those buildings because um, the moment they have to move um, because of a new job or a new family situation or any other reason, they are also going to suffer from the severe uh, rental shortage that we have in Vancouver. So uh, it really doesn't help anyone uh, and, in fact, even hurts the very people this policy is designed to help.
0: What about a project, if we look at, say, in Vancouver, if we look at what's happening with the Broadway line and with with a, a pretty major, major development for a city along a corridor and and so much attention was paid to that when it was approved by the previous council, renter protections and making sure that there would be policies in place to protect renters. Is that something that actually works too?
5: Well, uh, so this rental protection uh, policy already does what the fund is supposedly doing or is, uh, its goal is to do. And uh, so there is no need for additional policy. Uh, but even that rental protection um, measure to start with is highly misguided because all it does is it makes it even harder and more expensive to to develop new housing. It is much, much better to to move into a situation where we actually have sufficient housing with with normal vacancy rates of 3% or so uh, so that people can move around and find reasonable housing at reasonable rates. And then, um, and then even the people that, that are c- uh, currently living in those buildings will be able to move and find alternative and probably better housing if we have enough supply.
0: When you talk about it as well, the the real estate investment trusts, CREITs, why is it? Do you think that they are looked at so poorly, or they're looked at, and often people are told that that they are the enemy? So
5: I'm very surprised by that because REITs operate in 42 countries, from what I understand. There's, so there's four, 42 countries or more around the world uh, that have REIT uh, legislation and. Uh, and in Canada, that's that's a very big industry. It's it's a great way to own real estate. When it when REITs were introduced and, and became popular in the early 90s, they were celebrated as a way for individual investors and pension funds to own real estate in a very in a very inexpensive and, and efficient way. Uh, so I don't see what um, what the issue with REITs is. But that aside. Uh, REITs actually are are a pretty small player in in the Vancouver market um, because most of the rental properties here are fairly small and it just uh, REITs tend to need a lot of scale to to operate efficiently. So they're not a major player, but even if they were, REITs is a great investment because um, it's it's a great source of capital because it comes from individual investors who can commit capital for a long period of time at relatively low cost.
0: You also write about the fact that, that institutional investors are relatively small players when we look at local rentals and the local rental market, saying that in Metro Vancouver alone last year, accounting for about 12% of apartment building sales. That number seems, seems lower given how much attention we have paid to them.
5: Well, I think we're paying attention to them because they're an easy scapegoat they're uh, an easy target you know those are uh, institutional investors they probably have offices somewhere else in canada they don't vote so it makes it very easy to to make uh, an expedient argument that they are the cause of our problem Um, they're not we need more of them we need all kinds of investment in housing because we need to increase our supply um, quite really quite substantially and uh, to do that, we need uh, funding. We need capital, and REITs and institutional investors is one great source um, uh, of capital to do that.
0: You actually, uh, and in the piece called the 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 rental fund, the uh, and I've I've missed uh, where it is on the page. No, sorry, here it is. You refer to the rental protection fund as really a rental destruction fund. That seems like a really uh, bold statement.
5: Yes, that is quite uh, quite strong, but I really believe that this fund is detrimental to our uh, rental supply. I think we'll be better off to um, to really waste the money on, on anything else, or really just dump them down um, in the ocean, rather than use them to to really buy buildings and disrupt um, the supply of new housing. So this this fund is really designed. It's stated objective is actually to disrupt the provision of new housing. So it is not clear to me how this fund helps in any way expand our housing value need.
0: Uh, you also talk about the number of purpose-built rental units in BC and the fact that that number really has not changed a lot in the past decades or past a few decades, when uh, we're seeing the population grow by quite a bit. But that number hasn't changed. So, how do we change that number? Do you think if we're if the goal is to build more purpose-built rentals? Well,
5: guess right, every you know, conceivable. Um intervention and, and market manipulation measure and that all of them have backfired. So as a result, our rental supply is very, very low. Uh, and the way to fix that is to reverse course. We need to to remove obstacles to new rental supply, uh, specifically purpose-built rental um, supply, uh, make it easy and fast and as cheap as possible to develop those buildings so that we get a lot more of them. And the benefit of doing so is that this will also stimulate the economy and generate more jobs and more revenue that then can finance um, other infrastructure and and other improvements that we need.
0: And would that be possible then, or would that be a way, because one of the issues too, of course, is rent. And we know that rents in Metro Vancouver are extremely expensive and, and oftentimes far more than people can afford or far more than people should be paying based on their salary to, to pay for the rent in doing that. Is there a scenario where that increased supply will actually bring down the demand or will at least meet the demand and do anything about rates?
5: Well, the only way, the reason rents are expensive is that there isn't enough supply. And you can look at the vacancy rate, which in Vancouver has been around 1% forever, for as far as I can remember. So the only way to resolve this is, uh, is to vastly increase supply, especially rental supply. And then prices will naturally stabilize and, and rents may even fall. And uh, don't take my word for it. Just look at Seattle, which has been building a lot more um, housing and especially rental housing. Um, pre-pandemic, they had one year when they built 18,000 units just in Seattle alone. Uh, and, uh, and rents there are stable. And there was a vacancy pre-pandemic. Now, of course, the pandemic changed things. But... uh, Pre-pandemic, if you wanted a place in Seattle, you can find one, including incentives to move in, such as $2,000 Amazon gift cards or or two months of free rent or or, uh, things like that. So so supply works, we see see it every time, and uh, it's really common sense. You don't need an economist to tell you that if you want to reduce the price of something, you just need to um, provide a lot more of it.
0: All right, Andrei Pavlov, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
5: Of course, thank you for having me.